0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. I wanted to talk NBA draft with Derek Bodner. He's a very knowledgeable draft guy. He writes for the USA Today, Draft Express, and Liberty Ballers, which is a Philadelphia-specific site, which I really liked as a combination because he knows the draft and the Sixers, which I think was one of the more compelling storylines of the draft. He and I talked for about 43 minutes. We go through mostly the first round, but we do a little bit of second round stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. had a lot of fun talking with him. Thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. This was an interesting draft, in my opinion, and I feel like the, the place to start is where did this draft diverge the most from both your expectations and your own evaluations?
1: Well, actually, my own evaluations. I released you know, my own big board, and I actually had the, the five picks in order. Uh, now, that was my personal ranking. That was my team agnostic ranking. It was not what I expected the teams to do. To be honest, I think – You know, my expectations were really blown at the second pick. Uh, I thought the Lakers taking D'Angelo Russell was a smokescreen. I thought they were trying to use that as leverage with the Kings, uh, because the Kings wanted Okafor, and I thought they were trying to get them to make that decision, you know, on draft night and not wait until later. Uh, I expected them to go Okafor if the trade wasn't made, and that kind of, you know, shot down my expectations. And to be honest, I didn't expect Philadelphia to go with Okafor at three. I expected them to go with Porzingis if, Uh, Russell was off the board so it really my expectations were were kind of blown away right at the top
0: yeah and it's been I've been thinking a lot today I wasn't as high on Russell as you were if you had him second overall I don't Graham we'll talk about where how close those guys were but I'm intrigued to see assuming that next year he's if he if he plays a lot of the one how that will work defensively offensively I like him a lot but defensively I'm a little bit skeptical at that spot
1: no, he absolutely has some defensive concerns. I mean, he has excellent length for the position. Uh, he, his lateral foot speed is not great, but it's not horrible. Um, he's certainly going to be at you know, an athletic disadvantage against some of the really quick point guards in the league. But I think his, his biggest struggles at Ohio State came more from focus. Uh, he got lost off the ball a lot. His, his stance and his – you know, he got bit a lot on misdirections. Um, to me, it's, it's as much mental as it is physical – I do think he'll, you know he has some physical limitations that will probably prevent him from being a great defender, but I think his it, you know the biggest obstacles he has to overcome are, are mental on that side of the court, uh, focus and and just really playing sound fundamental defensive basketball.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're on this we're on the same page there. Uh, with Okafor, it's going to be people I think are talking too much about the idea of that they that they drive you know they have three guys now that overlap a lot. If he's the best player on your board when you're the Sixers and your team that it seems like is at least a little while away from being at your peak, whether or not they're going to be good soon is a different question. But at that point, don't they owe it to themselves to take whoever they think is the best guy available?
1: No, I think they do. Um, and I think you know that, that's kind of within reason. You know, I have Russell and Okafor rated pretty much neck and neck in terms of, of overall upside and, and ability down the line. So in that case, I would probably give Russell the slight edge, and it's not so much because of position, but just skill sets. Um, I'm a little bit worried about you know, Nerlens Noel, whether or not he's going to be able to space the floor enough for Okafor to really dominate as much as you would want him to on the offensive end and in the post. And I'm worried about Okafor's ability to move his feet defensively and, and really defend in space and defend the pick and roll, because I think you want to keep Nerlens Noel and Joel Embiid near the basket defensively so they can alter shots and really make the most of of that ability. So I'm I'm a little bit worried about fit and whether or not you know the fit with those three can really bring out the most between them. It's not so much the depth and the quantity, but but the way that they play off of each other. So I do think there is some concern there. But you know, ultimately, you're right. I think the way that the Sixers screw up is if in a couple of years they don't have a great player. And I think this was a move that you know minimizes the chances of that happening. I think that's why it was necessary.
0: Yeah, I I think that your goal yeah your goal is to get ideally you want to have a player who could be the best player on a title team but if you can get a step or two down from that whatever you can add to that group is great because you they're not going to be in such a bad situation that worst comes well in some ways the best case scenario is that they have to move one of them I don't think any of them are going to have a value hurt by that they might buy something like Embiid's injury issues but not by saying that because teams will always be able to sell themselves especially since these guys were all ty- highly touted much loved prospects that he didn't do it there but he can do it with us
1: yeah and i you know i think i think you hit it right if any of them loses value it's indeed because of his injury but you know if, if he comes back healthy to start the season and, and right now we really just don't know much of anything sam Hinkie basically said today that don't expect him to play in summer league uh, but they're still getting opinions. They're, they went up to a doctor in New York uh, earlier this week, and they're going down to Carolina for another opinion later on this week. So they're still trying to gather information. And if he is able to come back and play, and play well, you know, Nerlens Noel has already shown what he can do at an NBA level. Julio Okafor, I think, is a pretty safe bet to be, you know, at least successful on the offensive end. And if Embiid then succeeds, there are plenty of, of teams out there who will take any one of those players. Uh, and if you know, you come to the conclusion that they can't really mesh well, uh, that you have other more pressing needs, or that an opportunity presents itself where you can, you know, trade a combination of assets and the Sixers have four first round picks next year, three of which, you know, have a, a pretty decent chance of being in the lottery. So if you, you get to the conclusion where, you know, an opportunity presents itself where you can acquire, you know, a, a second superstar to, you know, whichever one of them beat or Okafor or even Noel really assert themselves then they're in a great position to, to capitalize on that.
0: And while, from what I've heard, I admittedly know very little about it, the 2016 draft may not be the strongest, this draft, while I liked a lot of the guys, there weren't many that fell, I'll exclude Justice Winslow, and Miles Turner I liked a lot too, who fell, let's say even beyond, you know, into the double digits, that you sit there and you go, oh, well, it's worth it to risk one of those first-round assets on this player.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Um, I think there are a couple of guys who, you know, could have been, really decent contributors uh, guys like you know Devin Booker and Rashad Vaughn even Terry Rosier who I I think the Celtics took way too high you know, I think he can be a good role player uh, Jerry and Grant but nobody that you're you're, you're gonna be losing sleep over. It, it was kind of a shame that those those other two picks that they have didn't convey especially the Lakers pick you know I think getting another pick in the six or seven range would have been really good for them But they're, they're, they're still gonna be really good picks I don't think the Lakers you know, by even by adding Russell and by getting Randall back, I don't see them as a playoff team at West, so I think that's a pretty good shot to be a lottery pick and, and that's a top three protected pick. And I think the Heat could be really interesting next year. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of decisions they'll have to make in the offseason in free agency. And uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of, of just the health and the age of the players as well. Uh, I do think Justice Winslow was a great get for them at ten. You know, they went basically one game away from losing that pick to the Sixers. And, and and they end up, you know, a couple months later with Justice Winslow. I think that was about the best case scenario you could have hoped for.
0: And Winslow's a guy who, while I think most rookies, and he's included in this, don't contribute immediately in terms of statistics, you know, they're not going to do well. I really like him in that 10 to 15, maybe 20-minute-a-game role and in this early stage, especially assuming they bring Waldang back, and then you can groom him in. And something I talked about a little bit with Nate Duncan last night is I love a guy like him and being able to start with a smaller role offensively. I don't think he's a primary option on offense, and to be able to have him start, assuming at least one of Drogic and Dwayne Wade comes back, to be able to have somebody like that plus Chris Bosh, it, it allows him to settle into a role more, more fitting for what he'll end up doing, which I think is what helps those guys along.
1: Yeah, no doubt. He's the type of kid who's going to have enough defensive potential to contribute from day one, but like you said, if you limit his offensive role, allow him, you know, to really progress a little bit as a ball handler, and allow him, you know, to take some time and, and really extend that range out to the NBA three-point line. I think sometimes that adjustment, uh, you know, the extra three feet basically from the college line to the NBA three-point line can catch some people by surprise. Uh, you know, I think he shot—he shot obviously just under forty-two percent from the uh, three-point range. But I think if, if you look at his, his shots that were beyond 24 feet, which is a three-pointer anywhere on the NBA court, I think it was somewhere around 34%. So he had you know, a little bit of an adjustment I think he's going to have to make. And I think that day one shooting percentage it might be a little bit lower than people expect just by looking at his, his uh, college resume. So I think it'll be good for him to be able to come along slowly
0: and with that something with him and with a couple other guys is that his shot selection will be a lot less important because he's not going to be he's not going to be sitting there going, "Oh my god, it's it's to me, I have to take a shot." The other guy like that and we'll we'll go back to the top of the draft. I don't want to talk about it, but the guy who I'm I think I'm higher on him than most people, but who I think is going to benefit a lot from that if and when he actually gets time is RJ Hunter. And RJ Hunter goes from being the straw that stirred the drink at at Georgia State to just a piece in the machine, and I mean that in the best way possible uh, in Boston.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he, uh, you know, you, a lot of times you look at, at three-point percentage, and that, that that really was not an accurate representation of his shooting skill. Um, you know, he's obviously a guy who, he had to do a lot for Georgia State. You know, he didn't get much freedom uh, and, and space to really get that shot off. And I think that really made his, his percentage suffer. Uh, you know, I went back and I, I, I talked about the, differences between Winslow at, at the college three-point line and 24 feet, I think D'Angelo Russell is another interesting case because he, about half of his three-pointers actually came from beyond 24 feet, and he shot better uh, from there at 42% compared to 41%. And I think part of that was because, you know, that was how he was able to get clean looks. And that was how he was, you know, using a ball screen and having to take a step or two back, but he was, that step or two gave him space. And I think, you know, I don't have the numbers for this, but I, I, would, I would hypothesize that, Hunter is in a similar situation because he just got so few open looks there. Uh, and you look at, you know, how he was able to shoot in previous seasons. You look at his free throw percentage. And I think everything is there to indicate that he's going to be a much better three-point shooter at the NBA level when he's a much, in a much smaller offensive role than he was there for Georgia State.
0: Yeah, uh, we're on the same page there. But let's go, let's move up back up to the top. We were ta- starting it, you know, we were talking about the top guys. So you said that you have the top five one according to your team agnostic rankings. That means you had Porzingis fourth. What yep. what stood out to you as as what made him in that group of players as opposed to maybe a little bit below?
1: Well, I think you know I think a lot of it is uniqueness, um, and it's a lot of times you get these stretch fours, and I think he's you know a very legitimate stretch four. Um, I think that that three point shot is, is going to be an incredible asset for him going forward. Um, you know, again, the European uh, three point line, the, the FIBA line, is right in the middle between the college and the NBA three point line, so it's a little bit tougher of a shot than a lot of the guys in college were, were attempting. Uh, and it was against different competition. You know, I think um, over there in the ACB, teams that have been together for years, teams that practice together more than a lot of college teams do, you know, the competition that's more mature and, and further along in their career and their defensive rotations are a little bit crisper. Uh, so for him to be able to shoot 36% from three-pointers with that farther line against that tougher competition and against defenses that, you know, are a little bit more in tune with each other, I think was very impressive. Uh, and what's interesting to me about him, first of all, he, he's seven one without shoes. He has an incredibly high release point that's almost un- unguardable, uh, and he does a very good job of of getting that shot off even without space, uh, even with a hand in his face. Uh, you look at his his catch and shoots, which are normally open shots, and and on a typical shooter, you know, it's, it's about fifty fifty in terms of guarded unguarded. About seventy percent of Porzingis sh- catch and shoot shots were guarded. Uh, Sevilla just didn't have a whole lot of offensive talent around him. They didn't have a lot of Great shot creators around him. And when he was in the game, they really relied on him to be, you know, a lot of times their, their primary offensive option. Uh, he's able to shoot coming off of screens, which I think is incredibly rare for a guy of his size. You know, I think when I was looking at it as a, a potential fit with the Sixers, you know, I always thought if, if you had the opponent's power forward, uh, who is usually their second best shot blocker and, and rebounder, and you had him running off of a screen 20 feet from the basket with Joel Embiid in the post, you've already won that matchup. So I think he his, his ability to space the floor, uh, that gravity score that that we like to talk about, I think is going to be insanely high. So now you combine that with you know a guy who's seven one, who's coordinated, who's pretty athletic for his size, who can get off the ground quickly and alter his shots, and who can move his feet a little bit on the perimeter. You know I think that combination of skills is extremely difficult to find you know in the NBA, a lot of times you have these stretch fours, but they can't really defend. They don't block shots at the rim. They don't really rebound. They don't create their own shot at all. They're, they're really one dimensional. And Porzingis, I think, has a chance to be multi dimensional. I think that is going to be incredibly, you know, incredibly fun to watch grow. You know, I was watching a game the other night where you know, he did a Euro step out of the three point line, went across his defender's body, and then dunked on the best shot blocker in the ACB. And you just don't see seven foot one guys do that. And sure, there's a lot of question marks. You know, he's got to add weight, he's got to play better through contact. Um, he's got to improve on the on defensive glass. But they're all improvable characteristics. I do think we look at size and mass, and you can even look at some of the preeminent defenders you know, of our time, guys like Tyson Chandler, uh, guys like Anthony Davis, Joaquin Noah, uh, guys who, when they came in the league, in big, bold letters at the top of their scouting reports said, must get stronger, must get more physical. So I think a lot of times we, we underestimate how much growth there is in the body of a 19-year-old. And we don't do necessarily a great job of projecting that out to when they're 25. And I think some of those concerns could just go away in time.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff to unpack there. But one of the things I want to start with is I'm not – I wasn't as high on Porzingis as you, but one of the things I really liked about him is that he produced against quality opponents. And something that people, I think, underappreciate in terms of the transition is that he was playing not only in the second-best league in the world, the ACB, But he was playing against professional basketball players, and that's a really big difference. You talked about continuity, and continuity is a huge part of that. The other huge part of it is that these are people who are doing it because it's their job. They don't have to have, whether you consider it legitimate or a pretense, the auspices of an education, of college, or anything like that. These guys are professional athletes. That is what they do. A lot of them, that is what they've been doing for a long time. And he, as a young guy, did very well.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, I mean it's it's a tough league to to be playing in as as a young kid like that. Uh, and he's you know, he's been a professional since he's been fifteen years old. He's been living away from home since he's been fifteen year old. And he comes over and he speaks, you know, fluent English. He's really you know, adjusted well to the culture before he even gets over here. And I think that's gonna be pretty big for him and his adjustment, especially going to New York. You know, but like like he said at NBA Media Day, you know, we had a chance to talk to him. He grew up in a basketball family. His parents pay, played, both his parents played, both his brothers played. Uh, his, his one brother, Giannis, played, I think, about a decade over in Europe. So he's really grown up around the game. And, and a lot of times you will hear people say, you know, Europeans like basketball and Americans love basketball. Well, I, I do get the very real sense that he loves basketball. And I think that's been a pretty going to be a pretty differentiating factor between him and some of the more higher-profile uh, European players who have come over and not done as well as expected.
0: The guy that, and it's going to be interesting to say, considering I just said I was lower on him than some people, the guy that I think about with him, and this is a very strange comparison, is Clay Thompson. And the reason yeah. for that is that they have really good jump shots, and they have a lot that they need to improve on. But I, I think that what makes Perzinga so interesting is that he does that in such an unusual body.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, he's you know he, his jump shot is such a threat, and you have to close out on him. And there just aren't very many guys... Who would be you know tall enough to defend him, who have the body control to, to really break down and 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 close out correctly, and then not be able and you know be able to stop him from then using that closeout as an avenue to attack the basket, and he has enough athleticism and enough ball handling to be able to do that. So yeah, he's got he's got just a wider range of skills. Um, it's not just his shooting. Uh, it's not just his ability to shoot coming off of a screen, which I almost view as a different skill than just pure shooting. You have so many guys who can shoot when they're stationed and and put in the corner and, and shooting from a catch. But you ask them to come off of a screen and their footwork's a mess and, and, and they never get you know, a real clean look at it, and he's he's great at that. But certainly, I mean, he has a lot of ability as a slasher uh, and and a guy who can move off the ball as well. Yeah.
0: I think when you and I talked, I think it was about two months ago, one of the guys we spent some time on is Mario Hazonia. I've been high on him for, seems like forever, honestly, since 2013. That's what's in my brain. It might have even been 2012 or 2011. He's just a, a phenomenal talent in a very unusual way and a very, very, very unusual way for a European player.
1: Yeah, no, there's, there's, I mean, he's, like you said, phenomenal talent. Uh, the combination of of shooting and athleticism is just extremely hard to find, especially in a 6'8 body like that. Um, I think he needs to improve his ball handling a little bit. Uh, you know, I think he's not going to be able to really untap that. Some of that athleticism, because I do think he has, you know, a lot of times you have guys who have great, leaping ability, and vertical explosion. But they don't necessarily have a great first step. And I think Hezoni does have a great first step. But I think he's going to have to improve his ball handling to really, you know, really untap that to its fullest potential. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think he has just about everything you could hope for. I do think he has, a lot of times on scouting reports you're reading that he's not a good defensive player, and there's there's some merit to that. But that's almost all mental. Um, you mm-hmm. know, he has the defensive tools to be a good a good defender. And I think if a coach can get him to really buy in and just Really concentrate on that side of the court for for, for the full game. Then I think there's a lot of potential there. Off the ball threat, he's an, an incredible, an incredible off the ball threat. Uh, and you know he's going to step in. He's probably going to believe he's the best player in Magic history. That could be either his, you know, biggest benefit or his biggest detriment. Um, you're going to have to control his his shot selection a little bit, but he's certainly not a guy who's going to back down from a situation. And he's certainly the type of guy who's going to have confidence in himself. And and sometimes that's important.
0: Yeah, it, it really can be. And with Hazonia, the as I've been letting this sink in, and I do really like the combination of Oladipo and Hazonia. I like it a lot more if they had a shooter at the one than Alfred Payton, but that's an issue of what we can talk about in a little bit. But I was thinking about it, and I said, I hope Scott Skiles is willing to run, because this is now a team that is yep. built to be up-tempo.
1: Yep, no doubt. And especially with a good you know, rebounder like Vucevic, um, who can get, a, get an outlet pass and get that thing going. You know, a lot of times, I think, People look at a, a slower footed, you know, five, and I think he doesn't fit in an up tempo offense. And I I don't, you don't need five filling a lane. You need somebody to start it as well. Uh, but yeah, with, with Peyton, with Oladipo, with Hazonia, I mean, if, if you're going to draft Hazonia, you have to be willing to go out there and, and try to run whenever you can because he's, you know, he's quick up and down the court. He's quick end to end, and he's just an incredible leaper. And I think he's going to be a real, real threat in that regard as well, especially early in his career when maybe he's. You know, taking a little time to really adjust himself. And, uh, and maybe not the offensive focal point that he will be in a couple of years.
0: When I think about Hazonia, the guy, and I'm not saying this as a comparison, but I've always thought that the ideal for a guy like Gerald Green, who's a phenomenal athlete, and actually b- before the last year or so, a pretty good shooter, and is obviously way better, is somebody who, it's always been a dream for me to have somebody who can r- run, Who's willing to run and who can either finish or shoot an open shot because in transition then what, you, what they allow, allows you to do is kind of be a jack-of all trades so instead of being like okay all you're going to do is run to the hoop is you do a lot of different things and it makes your defender very uncomfortable because they don't they can't predict it and I think that Hazonia in the short term can do a lot of that well, but his offensive potential is so much higher than a guy who's just an athlete:
1: yeah yeah no doubt uh, I agree 100 percent.
0: So well, we could talk a little bit about Collie Stein, but uh, if you had, so if you went one to five, uh, what did you think about Moutier with the Nuggets?
1: I think it's a great fit. Um, you know, I actually had, I would have had Moutier ranked probably 6th, just in terms of ranking, but I had Moutier going seventh in Nuggets on my mock draft, um, which which are obviously two different things. You know, I think I think the Nuggets could really use a guy like that who they can pencil in as a long term. You franchise, uh, building piece. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty there in that organization. Uh, there's just not much of an identity. Uh, and I think to be able to get that, and a guy like that to fall to seven. You know, I had questions about Moutier, but I might have him ranked six in this draft. That's because I think, you know, one through seven, one through eight, this is a really strong draft. You know, I think Emmanuel Moutier has the kind of talent uh, to be a top five pick. Uh, and I think especially if he's able to improve that jump shot, and obviously I don't think anybody – expects him to be D'Angelo Russell down the line. But if he can just improve that to where he's a threat and people have to guard him off the pick-and-roll and and they have to guard him on the perimeter and and open up driving the lane just a little bit, you know, I think he has a chance to be an all-star point guard. I do believe that.
0: And I think that he fits very well in the current NBA because I think he'll be a great primary ball handler in pick-and-roll situations, and the Nuggets have some nice players for that now. And I think Malone will be open to it. And the other component of that team is that They're so nebulous at everywhere other than Nurkic that I think that having Moutier who who can run an offense but can defend both guard positions is such a nice piece. It's the same reason that I would have loved Russell in Philly is that he's a guy that you can do a lot of different things around him. And I think that when you're a team that is in flux and that is going to change a lot, those are huge pieces to have when they're actually good at basketball, which, which both Russell and Moutier are
1: yeah no doubt. i mean i think uh you know i think his passing is, is probably a little underrated at this point um like you said his ability to, to really navigate a pick and roll and not just use that space to get in the lane for himself but also as a passer um i think he has, has really excellent vision coming off the pick and roll and i think you know driving to the hoop he does a good job getting his teammates involved there so i think if he just improves his jump shot off the dribble just a little bit and, and open it up just a little bit more you know i think that has a chance to be a real staple of his game, and like you said, something that the Nuggets can build around going forward.
0: One pick that like, I was generally okay with most of the picks at the top, but there are two things that struck out to me with Frank Kaminsky. I like Kaminsky. I, I had him higher than most people, but one is that they, they passed on Justice Winslow to take him, and you, you could talk about in fit, but we already had a discussion on that. But second... The rumors of that they've got some pretty ridiculous offers from the Celtics, and granted, saying four first-round picks from the Celtics does not necessarily mean they would be great assets. The Celtics have a couple of picks that revert and a couple other things, so we don't know which four it was, even or if they even did that. But it feels like either one of those paths would have been better, not only just from a pure value standpoint, but from an actually Charlotte basketball standpoint, than Frank Kaminsky.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I did not necessarily agree with the Nuggets at nine, or I'm sorry, the Hornets at nine. Um, I am probably not as high on Frank Kaminsky as you are. Uh, certainly a wonder, wonderfully diverse offensive player, and a guy who's going to be able to help an offense in that regard. You know, I do think floor spacing from a big man is so key, and especially when you have you know the ball skills and the passing to really take advantage of pulling that defender away from the hoop and away from the paint. You know, I think there's a lot you can do when when the paint opens up like that. And the guy who has a ball um, can can pass. Uh, I, I think that's going to be a wonderful skill for him. But I just don't see who he's really going to defend at the NBA level. Um, I don't think he's a very good post defender, and I, I, I clearly don't think that he can move his feet well enough on the perimeter to really play a lot a lot of the four and against a lot of perimeter power forwards and a lot of, of pick and roll that he's going to see at the NBA level. Um, and he's not a great shot blocker to really make up for that. So I think it's it's really hard to build, you know, to have a, a big man like that who struggles in those regards, who, who's really going to be worth, to me, a top-ten pick, and, and even who can develop into a starter. I think those are, are pretty big hurdles to overcome.
0: And another question with him, with a lot of, with a lot of the kind of stretch-four, stretch-five guys, is would a team be able to get away with putting a wing on them? And for me, with Kaminsky, it would depend on the, it would depend on the wing, of course. But if you had a long three let's say even the guy who went right above him, Stanley Johnson, I feel like he could do a serviceable job there.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you had a, a, a bulky three like that, too, um, e- either Winslow or Johnson, uh, you know, I think you know they can body a guy like him up. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes those two so intriguing as prospects, despite the fact that they, you know, measured, I think, shorter than most people are expecting. I think they're both measured either at or just under 6'6 six, six and choose, which was a little bit surprising. You know, but they had the length and the, and, and the strength. To really defend a, a versatile set of offensive players, so yeah, I think uh, you know he, he's going to have to be able to punish the mismatches he does get, because I think he's going to be at a mismatch on the other side of the court quite a bit.
0: Yeah, did you like Miles Turner? I, I'm, I'm a fan of his, uh, even if he. Uh, I'll give a little bit of mine before. I let you go. Like that, I like guys who can protect the rim and rebound, because even if they don't start, having a guy like that on your bench is really valuable.
1: Yeah, um, and I think that's a good spot for him too. Uh, you know, I think obviously the Pacers have a little bit of a, a lot of bit of uncertainty in their front court, so I think getting a guy like that it, it was a good get for them. Um, and you're right, he's a very good rebounder on both ends of the court. He can block shots at the rim. Not a, a great athlete, but he has excellent timing and, and and he rotates well. And you know, obviously the jump shot is another very intriguing aspect. And again, it kind of goes back to Porzingis, but not you know he's not quite as diverse of an offensive player. But a guy who can shoot from the perimeter and block shots is, I think, has a lot of value. Um, he obviously shot. He struggled with his shot down a stretch uh, for Texas, and ended up shooting, you know, a, a pretty poor percentage in that regard. And he, he kind of fell in love with his jump shot as well. But you know, a lot of times you look at free throw shooting as a better predictor of future success, just because there's a lot more, you know, a lot larger sample size. And he shot the ball really well from the line. I think his his jump shot, given time, I think, is going to be a real asset. So like I said, the, the guy who has that kind of, of shot blocking, rebounding, and shooting, I think he's going to be a, a valuable player. Uh, one thing I do worry about a little bit is that he's just not all that fluid on the perimeter, and again, defending the pick and roll. But if he's playing more of a five with you know a, a, a smaller power forward next to him than, than playing alongside a, a big guy, I think that's going to be minimized a little bit
0: yeah I, I i think we're on the same page there, and yeah there will be some times that he gets caught in those pick and rolls, but I think that you can handle that and again one of the th- one of the components of team building that I like is when you're when you have a guy on the per- on the extreme, so point guard and and center who can do a good job at at their own at staying in their lane and I think that what I like about Turner is offensively he can stretch a little bit, but defensively. You don't necessarily need a center. Obviously, it's great if you can have a Draymond Green at center who can switch a bunch of different things out there, or a Willie Cauley Stein maybe eventually. But if you at those at center, it's a lot less important to be versatile than it is at like let's say the three.
1: Yeah, no, no, no doubt. I mean, they're not going to ask him to really create off the dribble. They're probably not even going to ask him at least day one to create in the in the post. Um, if he just rebounds block shots uh, and hits shots from the perimeter, he's gonna, he's gonna you know, be a, a pretty good role player for them.
0: Can you explain the appeal of Trey Lyles to me? I've had a lot of trouble figuring out what his calling card will be in the league. I see that he has potential, but I have trouble figuring out when like when five years down the road if his best case scenario happens, you're like, oh man, you have to see Trey Lyles he can do this.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think 12 was probably a little bit high for him. Um, you know I think his jump shot, it's not quite out to even college three-point range, but I think there's a lot of hope in that regard. Uh, and I think kind of playing a lot of times at the three for Kentucky because their depth may help uh, him, him develop that. Um, I think you know I think his his future is as a, a stretch power forward, uh, a, a guy who can shoot from the perimeter, but also a guy who can attack off the dribble and and really be more of a you know face-up power forward. Um, You know, I think he has a little bit of of diversity offensively. Uh, He's got some nice touch on floaters. He can drive to the hoop a little bit. You know, I don't think he's quite the defender to really be a... a, I think he probably went about four or five spots too high. But I do think he has some offensive potential and could, you know, become a nice role player down the line.
0: Yeah, I I certainly see the, the ability for him to be good. But we'll move on. I don't want to talk go pick by pick through everything, but just... Let's let's start with the first round. Any picks from the rest of it? We also didn't talk about everybody in, in the top, but any picks that really stood out to you in a positive or negative light?
1: Well, I think Bobby Portis falling as far as he did to twenty-two, I think, was a little bit unexpected. I really like Bobby Portis. Um, you know, guy who can who can rebound on both ends of the court, uh, has you know a little bit of a, of a face-up game and can stretch the floor a little bit, and who. Can defend a number of positions defensively. Um, I think he moves his feet pretty well for a guy of his size. Can defend some, you know, some bigger threes and obviously fours. But just a guy who gives you constant energy and constant effort. And I thought, you know, I really thought he would go in the mid first round. So I think falling to twenty-two, while maybe not the best spot for him at least early on in his career, because of the Bulls' depth at that position, you know, I think he'll he'll have a chance to learn there. Uh, and and I think they got a good player for themselves. Um, so I think that was was a positive surprise. You know, I think RJ Hunter falling the Celtics at, at twenty eight. You know, that's a team that needs shooting and needs shooting badly. Uh, a team that could, could really stand to space the floor better. So I think he's he's gonna be a nice fit for them. Uh and I think he's good value at twenty eight. I kind of expected you know, he was rising up pretty quickly, uh, first into the mid twenties and even sometimes in the late teens. So I think him falling was a little bit of a surprise as well. Uh, and I think uh you know, I think that's gonna be a good get for the Celtics. Um and obviously I think the biggest surprise to me was turn or uh Justice Winslow, uh, I did not expect him to last the ten. You know, I thought he had a chance to go as high as four or five. Uh, I thought his floor was really eight to the Pistons. When when they went, you know, Stanley Johnson over over Winslow, I was a little bit surprised.
0: Yeah, I with with RJ being a Bay Area based writer, I kept, at a certain point it just kind of started feeling like destiny that he was going to fall to the Warriors and just completely wreck things with them. But what I like about the Celtics that I still don't think they have that center figure that everything revolves around but I think they have a lot of pieces that I like and one of the fascinating points about them now is they have two really offensive centric guys in Isaiah and RJ and then they have two defensive centric guys in Marcus Smart and Avery Bradley so as long as Brad Stevens can kind of figure out how to combine those guys in a, in a cohesive sense I think that it could work pretty nicely for them just in terms of complementary talent on the perimeter
1: yeah, no, I agree with that. I think you know they're missing to me two pretty key uh, ingredients. Um, I think they could use one more real slashing wing, uh, some guy to take a little bit of the shot creation off of Thomas' hands. But I think really what they need is is shot blocking. Uh, I think they need a, a big who can really protect the hoop in the worst way. And I like Jordan Mickey, who they got in the second round. You know, I think he's I think he's a steal at that at that range. Uh, and I think he provided them a little bit of that. So hopefully this draft you know addresses some of their bigger needs in that regard.
0: Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if Mickey actually gets time. And what I've had trouble figuring out with the Celtics is just really how they're going to get that that main piece. Because a lot of times, that's the hardest thing to get. And I was thinking about it in terms of them pushing to make the playoffs. Because to me, if they had faded out a little bit and gotten a guy like Miles Turner, I would have thought, and then they still could have gotten RJ, theoretically they would be a lot closer to where I thought, you know, okay, I can see how they're going to build off this.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, it's it's kind of interesting watching Boston and Philadelphia go about their rebuilds because they're really going it in, in the exact opposite way. Uh, you know, Philadelphia is all about getting you know, that great player, and, and those complementary pieces, those, you know, average pieces, those, those even borderline all-star pieces that make you relevant, and, and certainly, you know, the Celtics with that late-season run would be relevant, but to truly make you a contender, you know, I think Philadelphia believes that if you don't get that guy first, then everything else is kind of noise. And everything right now in Philadelphia's world is getting, you know, that transcendent talent and that guy that they can really build around, that guy who can be a top ten player in the league. Whereas Boston, I think right now is ironically kind of doing it the way that uh, Houston did their rebuild, and getting a lot of good pieces, getting a lot of guys who, you know, when they develop them and and take them, have more value than they did at the time of the draft, and using that then to the Celtics real soon, uh, probably within the next year, are going to look to consolidate a lot of the assets that they have and turn that into that one great player. So it's two teams going about it in two different ways, but I think the end result could be very similar.
0: Yeah, and that ties in with, I don't think they're going to trade him, but the concept of a DeMarcus Cousins trade. And you think about if you were to the Sacramento Kings, and let's say you made the decision, which I wouldn't do, to trade DeMarcus Cousins, The kind of offer you would get from those two teams, from the Celtics and the Sixers, would be so different. Personally, I'm all about high-end talent in terms of if you're going to be Sacramento, especially if you're a team that's not a big free agent destination. But we saw with the James Harden trade that you can do it with a collection of of non-elite assets if you have them and they're good enough and they're close enough to elite.
1: Yeah, and I think what's going to be you know, the primary piece that the Celtics are going to use in future years are going to be the two Brooklyn Nets picks they have coming up uh, the next few years. You know, I think they have the Nets pick in 2016, and then they have the right to swap picks in 2017, or maybe I have that reversed. But they're, they're basically going to get the Nets picks over the next two years. And when you look at the Nets roster and how aging of a core that is and how expensive it is and how unlikely it is that they're going to drastically improve in free agency – you know, they're the type of team that I could see falling off a cliff pretty quickly. And you could be looking at in you know, two potential top ten picks there and maybe even better than that. So I think if uh, the closer you get to those picks actually becoming realized and conveyed, the more value they have, and the more chance they have, you know, to, to turn all of these other, you know, relatively good, solid assets but not great assets, if they're then combining that with a great asset in the Nets pick, then I think I think it has a chance to you know, to really be able to go out there and make a compelling package.
0: So the way it works with the Brooklyn picks is the Celtics have them unobstructed in 16 and 18, and then they have a swap, uh, the right to swap in 17. And what I think is so kind of fascinating about that idea for the Celtics... Well, there are two things. One is, I think they're too good right now. We talked about it with their pick this year, that their picks aren't premium assets anymore. You know, like, if you're talking in the future, you know, if the Celtics are sitting there right now and saying, hey, Sacramento or whoever you can have our first-round pick. They're sitting there and thinking something very different than if Philly says the same thing. And it would. I don't know if it counts as ironic, but it would just be cruel if the reason that those Nets picks ended up being a little bit worse is because the NBA doesn't go to a top-16 format, and the Eastern Conference (laughs) making it into the 7 or 8 spots in the East is just easy enough that the Nets can do it as they're kind of in their last gasp with their current core. And I think in a lot of ways, that's absolutely the worst case scenario for the Celtics.
1: It'll be real real interesting to watch over the next coming years, um, because the way Brooklyn's built that team, it just, you know, they could stay mediocre or they could just completely go in the tank and it'll, uh, you know, I'm sure Danny Ainge and Boston are going to be, you know, really interested in watching that that situation unfold. That's
0: a very polite way of putting it. Uh, Before I let you go, (laughs) any second round picks that you really liked?
1: Uh, well, I think what was really interesting for me was which second-round picks didn't get selected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Christian Wood what, was a guy who was at one point thought of as a potential mid-first-round pick. You know, and I heard that he had some interviews that didn't go so well for him with teams, uh, and some people just really questioning his maturity and some of the people he has around him. Um, and then you know Robert Upshaw, and that one's not a huge shock, but I kind of figured that a guy with that kind of ability to really alter a game defensively um, and, and just I mean, he, he can really dominate on that in the court. I thought somebody was going to take a chance on him uh, and, and get the chance to really lock him up into a two or even longer deal contract that had very little guarantee. Uh, and I think that would have, you know, been a been an interesting gamble to take um, because I do think he has really, really good talent. The second round of the draft was just so it was so uncertain going in. This wasn't necessarily the strongest second round of the draft. You know, like I said, I I liked Jordan Mickey quite a bit. I was surprised at Montrez Harrell fell that far and actually one of the guys I really liked over the last couple of months that I didn't see a whole lot of before then was um, Bowling Green's Rashawn Holmes you know he was a guy who I watched a couple Bowling Green games over the course of the year but not not very much it wasn't a regular on my on my computer screen but I saw him out at Portsmouth and he really he was really impressive um, a guy who has so much mobility defensively can block shots and also has some perimeter skills and he, he played really well at the combine again so I think he's a type that, you know, you look at uh, college seniors, and a lot of times you don't think they really have upside. But he's young. I think he's, he's still only 21 years old, and he played in such a small small school that I think he has a chance to, you know, be a, a decent backup player in this league.
0: And it feels like both him and J.P. Tokido, that the if the Sixers can get them on what I jokingly call the Hinky special, which is, you know, those contracts that are heavily non-guaranteed and run for a while, if they can get either or both those guys – then you're you're making a smart bet because one or both of them could end up working out nicely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and Takoto's another one who's such a good defender. And obviously that jump shot of his is gonna be a a pretty big question mark and, and something that could limit his usefulness in the league. But it's the type of, of skill that, you know, while it might not always be improvable, it has a chance to be improvable. And I think he has enough defensive and athletic ability that you, you take that gamble at fifty eight. I mean your your expectations for the fifty eighth pick are obviously very, very low.
0: It was, it was also a year of guys who were, in the second round, guys who, who used to be a lot more famous and whose stock was a lot higher than it is now. Harrell, um, Dakari Johnson, Andrew Harrison. And I, I'm going to be intrigued to see how those guys work out because I think, maybe not as much in Dakari, but I think all those guys have the talent to justify where they were originally, though getting a little bit more sunlight helped expose some of their flaws.
1: Well, speaking of guys who were, were previously extremely highly touted, uh, Cliff Alexander. Oh, yeah. Potential top five pick uh, just two years ago. If there or just a year if ago. If there either. wasn't
0: an age limit, if there yeah. wasn't an age limit, he goes in the lottery last year.
1: Yeah, and I don't I don't think anything, you know, obviously there was that um, eligibility concerns towards the end of the season. I don't think I played really any part in his not getting drafted. He was just very disappointing. But by the same token, you're talking about an 18, 19-year-old with that kind of body and athleticism. You know, I think I was surp- he was another one I was surprised that somebody didn't take a chance on him.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like those three, Wood, Alexander, and Upshaw, all have NBA talent. And I think they'll get a shot. Whether they make the most of it is another question. And in some ways, for those guys, while it obviously is unfortunate for them now, them falling out of the second round hopefully gives them the reality check they need to get everything together to become the players they should be.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, its uh, you can be as high-pedigreed as you want. But there's absolutely nothing guaranteed to you uh, coming into the draft, and I think I think that was a good. You're right; it could be a good reality check for them.
0: Any other any other thoughts before we let you go?
1: Um, I mean, it's a, you know, it was it was it was a fun draft. I really enjoyed the uncertainty at the top and the trade rumors, and the misdirection that was going on between, you know, really the Lakers and and the Knicks too. Um, I did not think they would they would go with Porzingis. I did not think. Uh, Phil Jackson had that in him, not at this early in his career as a, as a decision maker. Um, that is a very unpopular pick, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, he works in, in New York. Um, you know, I think, like I said earlier, I think he's a good kid, but uh, I think he's he's in a tough spot, and it's going to be challenging for him. And he's going to struggle day one, which isn't going to make it any easier. But I think that intrigue at the top of the, at the top of the draft between the Lakers, Philadelphia, and New York, I think it made for a fascinating pre-draft process.
0: And Porzingis on the Knicks definitely makes Summer League have an interesting feel to it. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Love talking to you.
1: It's my pleasure. Take care.
0: Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. You can read him in the USA Today, Draft Express, and Liberty Ballers, along with numerous other places. You can read those in his Twitter bio. And his Twitter handle is Derek Bodner NBA. Great follow all year. I I think he's best this time of year, but he's strong all year. And as he said, you know, connections with Portsmouth and with everything else. He's a very knowledgeable guy on it. I'm hoping to do a couple other fun podcasts in the next little bit. As most of you know, I'm a very big off-season guy. I'm not used to being this close to the finals, and so did that. Planning on doing a couple things actually on the Warriors. That's just giving the writers a little bit of time to breathe after that whole run and spend some time with their families, but. Should be doing that soon and, of course, going into the offseason. For those of you who who don't know, I also am a very frequent part of Nate Duncan's Dunked On Basketball Podcast, which is, honestly, I think it's really excellent. And whether I'm on it or not, oftentimes it's even been better. But when I'm not on it, it's because his guests are phenomenal. But you should definitely give that a listen. You should If you like it, you should subscribe to one or both of them on iTunes. I also really appreciate it. If you write a review, those things are very good, especially if they're positive. If you have any feedback, you can send it to me the best way is on Twitter. It's uh, danieleroux, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or Daniel.larue at realgm.com. That's my email address. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can, and I appreciate all of it. The one other thing is, uh, it it got a little bit lost in the shuffle with Thursday, but it's going to be around for a long time, is my new project with Real GM. It's called the CBA Encyclopedia. It is, the idea is to have it be a more fleshed out vision to explain concepts and and ideas that it can be complicated, and to connect it with the real world. So, I'm, I just, there's a piece that's coming out that's on trade exceptions, I want to continue to tie that in with, as it's being used, so it's not just, this is a static thing of this is what trade exceptions are, this is going to, it's going to connect with the world, and... Another awesome thing that will eventually be a part of it is that it will connect with Real GM in a more direct way, which is I'll use the trade example trade trade exception example again, which is that let's say a team acquires, let's say Memphis acquired Luke Rudenauer with a trade exception. Once we get it fully integrated, that will have a link to explain them in the piece. So if you ever are reading a Real GM article or anywhere else and you see something that you're unfamiliar with, you should be able to connect in with an appropriate encyclopedia entry there so that you can find out the information that you are missing. You can also always reach out to me and just ask the question. It's something I genuinely enjoy doing. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career
1: advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better.